I'm Yvonne Villarreal. And I'm Mark Olson. You're listening to The Envelope, the LA Times podcast where we dive in deep with top talent in TV and film. Today's guest is director, producer, and writer Adam McKay. And Yvonne, let me just read you the list of some of the films he's directed. Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, Step Brothers, The Other Guys. So lots of comedies, check. Lots of Will Ferrell, check. Yes, and you may also remember the now iconic Funny or Die landlord sketch. Uh, that's actually Adam's daughter in the video. You don't have to raise your voice. You pay you! I can give you half. You pay little bit. Hey, don't talk to me like that. McKay and Will Ferrell actually had a production company together called Gary Sanchez Productions. And though they recently parted ways, that's something they've both talked about in recent interviews. And we get into it in our episode today as well. But I want to get back to that list of movies that he's made. You know, McKay also wrote and directed The Big Short, which was based on the 2008 financial collapse. Yeah, which earned him an Academy Award, right? That's right. And it also marked a departure from his earlier brand of absurdist comedy into these more fact-based stories. And then, of course, there was Vice about former Vice President Dick Cheney. Adam's also an executive producer on the television series Succession, which is based on real-life media dynasties like the Murdoch family. And then his latest film is Don't Look Up, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence. Hi, yes, uh, Dr. Mindy. And, and no, PhD candidate Kate DiBiaschi founded. I did the orbital calculations. Uh, I study trace gases in dead galaxies. I, uh, I haven't published in a while, so you probably haven't. Not a surprise, given Adam's interests, but the movie is overtly political. Meryl Streep actually plays the president, though I'm not sure she's someone you or I would vote for, even if it is played by Meryl Streep. But also, (laughs) typical of Adam's work, Don't Look Up, doesn't really fit neatly into a single genre. It's this apocalyptic disaster movie and sort of bleak, but then it's also this hilarious and strangely heartfelt, like farcical satire. You know what? I'll let him explain it. It's a pretty simple one-line pitch. It's just a giant doomsday comet is headed to Earth and two mid-level scientists discover it and they basically have to go on a media tour and warn the world. And then if someone says, and what happens? The second part I'll say is, well, what do you think would actually happen in the world if someone tried to do that? <laughs> they get chewed up and kicked and pinballed around by social media, celebrity culture, divided politics, and uh, each of them, Leo's character and Jen's character, each has kind of their own horrible journey <laughs> through the world trying to just give out the simple fact that a massive comet's going to hit planet Earth. Not being clear, we're trying to tell you that the entire planet is about to be destroyed. Okay. Okay. Um, well, it's um, you know, just something we do around here. You know, we just keep the bad news light. Right. It helps the medicine go down. And speaking of medicine, tomorrow. And now the movie really is just jam-packed with stars, even more so to me, it seems, than your other movies, which have plenty of movie stars. I mean, here you have Jennifer Lawrence, Meryl Streep. Leonardo DiCaprio, Timothy Chalamet, Tyler Perry, Kate Blanchett, Ariana Grande. We have the Fonz. We have Evil Knievel. Jesus has a couple lines in the movie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's an unbelievable cast. You're 100% correct. 
you know, I wrote the role of Kate DiBiaschi for Jen Lawrence. So she was first in. I wrote Teddy Oglethorpe for Rob Morgan. And Meryl Streep said yes pretty quickly. So you always kind of go through your dream lists of the cast you're looking for. And in this case, I think there was just a lot of actors who were excited to try and process these insane times that we live in. And I realized at a certain point it actually played into what the movie's about in kind of a beautiful way because it's about our profit-driven, distraction, bifurcated culture. And having these giant stars in it sort of augments that for the first 60, 70% of the movie. Join us tomorrow when our guest will be the man that many say will challenge President Orlean in two years. Senator Jeff Lerner will be here. And wrongly convicted murderer Michelle Weems talks to us about her controversial third place finish on Celebrity Dance Off. So controversial. I thought she would have won. I really did. Yes, well, I still think she's guilty. That's the Daily Rib, guys. Have a great day. When you and I had spoken before, you mentioned how Meryl Streep's character was kind of a stew of like different presidents. But she, in a recent interview, said that she kind of based the character in part on the Real Housewives. And did you weigh in on that? Like, is that where, where did sort of like the Housewives enter that stew? I mean, I wrote the character to be a goulash of all the pretty much horrendous presidents that, <laughs> that we've had in the White House over the last 40 to 45 years. Uh, so there's little pieces of each of them in the way I wrote it. And then half the fun is then seeing an actor like Meryl Streep take that and kind of run with it on her own. I, I also floated the idea of Susie Orman, uh, the sort of populist financial advisor, you know, I, I, I like the idea of someone with statement hair, strong fashion choice, that kind of fake no-nonsense thing that you see, like, I'm going to tell the truth, but meanwhile, behind closed doors, they're just selling you out at every turn. Um, so Real Housewives was a perfect reference for that, because those characters on that show, I haven't seen it a lot. Uh, I'm lying. I've seen it way too much. Um, but those characters definitely play that game of, hey, I'm real. I'm no nonsense. And then everything's carefully curated and planned. And and there's kind of an aggressive play for the cameras kind of quality. So, yeah, I, I love that she brought that into it. Oh, I heard there's an asteroid or a comet or something that that you don't like the looks of. Tell me about it, and then tell me why you're telling me about it. You got 20 minutes. 20 minutes? That's you, Doc. Go. The films that you've been making most recently, but even going back, I think, to like Talladega Nights, you've really been in direct conversation with recent history, and it seems like the, the gap, like the time span is getting shorter. Like you're somehow <laughs> able to be reflecting on things much faster. And with Don't Look Up, you really are talking about things that are happening right now. How are you doing that? I mean, I never, ever imagined that this script would, that the events that this script is it, it, playing with, I, I just never imagined that they would happen while we were filming the script. Because not only did the pandemic hit and then the Capitol building was attacked, 
But also climate change hit in a way, I think, that was startling. I know the scientists were startled by it, that it came that strong. And that fast. And it jumped about 20 to 30 years in all of their models. We started seeing those fires in Sardinia in the Northwest, here in the States, in Greece. Rescue crews have been searching the charred remains of homes and cars in the deadliest of the fires, the one in the Raffina area, northeast of Athens. The flooding in Germany. In the moment is uh, very, very bad. The water is still coming higher. We have got the information that- I mean, footage that looks like it's bad CG from a a disaster movie. That was the other thing, too. It clearly things are moving much faster than we think. Um, And no, I never wanted this movie to overlap with reality this much. Well, you even you mentioned the Capitol attack on January 6th, and there is a, a riot scene in don't look up that when you're watching it feels like, you know, eerily and uncomfortably similar to that. Yeah. But then when did you actually shoot your riot scene? We shot our riot scene. I believe it was three days after January 6th. And in the movie, it's done a little bit comedically, the setup for it. And it did not feel funny. It felt uncomfortable But the one thing we all forget is it was during the pandemic, so the streets were completely empty. So there ended up being no danger of frightening anyone or, you know, spurring on some accidental trouble. It all ended up being contained and totally safe. But there was clearly some bubbling extremism going on in the right wing that was a little troubling when we started pre-production. We were still months away from the election. And we kept having safety meetings about COVID. And I started doing a bit of kind of an impersonation of the safety coordinator, just saying like, okay, everyone, uh, I just want to talk to you today. There is a chance there could be a white nationalist, extreme right wing insurrection against our government. want to talk about how we have a safe set if that happens. And immediately, uh, you know. And this is before the attack? Oh, well before it. Four months before January 6th, this elaborate bit about if there's a right wing insurrection, if a mob attacks our set, here's the things you're going to want to do. Immediately throw out your driver's license so they don't know that you're from a blue state. Uh, It can help if you can do a good accent, speak with a slight southern accent, start chanting Trump, see if you can blend in with the crowd. (laughs) And like if you're a celebrity, uh, hide immediately. And I was just doing this chipper safety thing. So. I feel like the the craziest fiction you can think of at this point is always two, three steps away. And and we know that about fiction. A lot of it's always going to come true in one shape or another. But like you said earlier, I've just never seen the rate of speed between the idea and it becoming a reality this fast. Okay, so it's on 100%. Well, scientists never like to say 100%. Call it 70% and let's just, let's move on. But it's not even close to 70%. You cannot go around saying to people that there's a 100% chance that they're going to die. You know? The movie, like with this idea of the comet, I mean, it feels at first like it's, you know, most obviously about climate change or like that sort of like the metaphor that we're dealing with. But the movie becomes about so much more. I mean, it really is about sort of the 
cultural and political moment that we're in and people's inability to communicate. Like, how did that transition happen? Like, how for you did it sort of start out being about climate change and then build into being about, in some ways about this bigger sort of systemic issue? It's kind of what you hope is going to happen with any script or film you work on. You hope that you're going to discover other elements, that it's going to show you things you weren't thinking about when you were first writing it or making it. And without a doubt, that happened on this. And it was really after we shut down because of the pandemic and we had a five-month break during which I was wondering do you still make this movie? Are, are we not just living through what the movie was? And I didn't read the script for four or five months. And then I picked it up and it read completely different. It was really about the fact that we've broken the lines of communication. Everything's been, you know, enhanced and turned into engagement or polarization or one side versus the other, all to maximize profits. And that all really jumped out at me when I, I read it again and I checked in with the cast and they all felt the same way. Because in the movie, there there's uh, this tech company called Bash that seems to be a part of everyone's life. And they have this leader that's played by Mark Rylance, who I you can tell me, I guess he's kind of a mashup of like a Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg type. And part of his almost like corporate pitch is the elimination of sad feelings. Um, it also seriously uh, schedules a therapy session with a nearby professional so we can make sure that these sad feelings never, ever, ever return. May I say something, Mr. Ishmael? No. And to support... <laughs> do you think that sometimes we do in fact have to face bad and uncomfortable feelings like where where did that kind of that idea of bash eliminating bad feelings come from i mean mark how crazy is it it's 2021 and, and like you actually had to ask me that question like think <laughs> think about 10 years ago do you think we actually have to face bad and sad feelings like and by the way i'm not giving you a hard time because it's a legitimate question uh, like, I would just say, yes, of course. Like, it's, I mean, it's, without it, we're not going to survive. But it is one of my favorite things in the movie that they create this interface for their phone called Life, L-I-I-F. And it essentially just makes all the decisions for you. If you feel sad, it reads your heart rate, perspiration, et cetera. It'll play a funny video. It automatically makes an appointment with a therapist. It automatically downloads songs. And uh, one of the slogans we played with is Bash. We pay attention so you don't have to. <laughs> so, I, I mean, it's another one of those ideas. I, I just wouldn't be surprised in two, three years if you started seeing phones making automatic decisions for people it all started with a connection in fact i bet you it's in the works right now introducing bash life life without the stress of living and now with your last two movies the big short and vice i feel like you really hit on this tone that is just all your own i mean I guess it's like the fact-based comedy drama and Don't Look Up feels a little pitched a little more strongly to comedy. Do you feel like somehow in the social and political engagement of these movies that the comedy, I mean, does it help the medicine 
go down. Like in some ways, these are very serious movies dealing with very serious issues, and yet they are also very funny. I feel like there's two sides to a, a lot of the institutions and systems that have been collapsing in the last 10 to 20 years. On one side, there's real world effects and people's lives being destroyed, or in many cases, people losing their lives. But on the other side, there's this clown show of incompetence and conflict of interest and uh, people speaking in this kind of BS timeshare salesman tone of voice that everyone can see through, yet they keep plowing ahead with it. So it, I, I have kind of experienced uh, the last 20 years as both horrifying and beyond ridiculous um, do you remember the story that was floated when Trump came back from the hospital after his bout with COVID? And there was a story floating that it was very seriously considered that Trump was going to open his shirt and reveal a Superman S. <laughs> yes. And I felt like Superman. I wanted to rip, I wanted to rip my shirt off. I mean, I wouldn't have written that in Step Brothers. Just like the legendary Clark Kent. <laughs> my favorite joke that i've heard during these these swirling chaotic times was the john mulaney joke about the only way to describe trump is like a loose horse in a hospital we have no frame of reference for it we don't know where it's going and i would say that that analogy broadens beyond that president i i think it kind of describes everything we're experiencing right now you know good lord <laughs> you watch the news and it's just you're hearing things that just seem like they're from an over-the-top sci-fi movie from 1989, and it's the actual news that you're watching. Um, so I've just experienced this sort of collapse culture that we're in on those two sides of really upsetting and at the same time beyond the wildest farce you could ever imagine. Um, but Don't Look Up is definitely a comedy it's a work of fiction. Uh, it had a much looser, freer feeling to it. In a way, it was sort of uh, the whole process of writing it felt like a relief after uh, having gone through the experience of making Vice. And now in the making of Vice, you have talked quite a bit about the fact that you had a heart attack and it led to changing your health habits. Did it change your outlook at all too? Like I'm going through an experience like that and especially leading you know, to the next film being this apocalyptic comedy, did you find that your view on the world softened after that near-death experience? Did it harden in some ways? Like, did going through that change you somehow? It was a funny thing. It was the day after in the hospital I had had this heart attack, and thank God it was not a major one. And I caught it very quickly, took a bunch of baby aspirin. I was at the hospital in like 15 minutes. So there was no structural damage done to my heart. But the day after in the hospital, I just had the biggest, dumbest smile on my face. And I couldn't stop joking around and laughing. I was just in such a good mood. And the doctor and the nurse and my wife were all like, wow, you're in a very good mood for having just had a heart attack. And I'm like, I'm alive. 
So in some ways, I do think it led to Don't Look Up and the idea of going back to a little bit more comedy with a capital C and the idea of laughing again in what we're doing. We were grateful every day that we were able to process these frightening and shocking events through joking around, which I think is always a good thing. After the break, more with Adam McKay. And we're back. Here's more with Don't Look Up filmmaker Adam McKay. I want to pivot a little bit to talk kind of about how you got to this place where you are in your career. I mean, earlier, you know, you were making movies like Anchorman and Talladega Nights. There were more obviously comedy in there. The the issues of those movies were maybe smuggled in a little more. And then you transitioned with Big Short and Vice to making these more sort of these movies that are more obviously dealing with big issues. But did that feel like a transition to you? Like, did it feel as much of a change to you as I think it did to a lot of viewers and people on the outside? Yeah, there's there's some stretches in Anchorman 2 and the other guys uh, where the commentary starts getting a little bolder and in some cases maybe naked. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a run in Anchorman 2 where Ron Burgundy says, why do we have to tell people what they need to hear on the news. Why can't we tell them what they want to hear? And essentially him and his news team invent infotainment. What they want to hear. And what do they want to hear, Ron? That we live in the greatest country God ever created. Damn straight. Made him happy. And we should do stories on, on patriots. Cute, funny little animals, huh? Diets. Uh, Why blondes have more fun. And serious investigative And then the same in the other guys. I mean, the whole movie, even though it's a laugh out loud comedy, uh, is all designed to be allegory for the financial collapse. If you look at the story beats, it took a lot of time to construct it. And then, of course, no one noticed and they just laughed at it, which was an interesting learning experience. Like, oh, that's interesting. I did all that work, but they're just laughing at the bits. By the way, not a bad problem to have. Um, So it was starting to happen with those movies. And I remember having discussions with uh, our producer from Will and Mine's old company, Gary Sanchez. And I just talked about how the villain and the other guys can't just be a drug smuggler and that the, the, the idea of villains in movies have changed and you can't do these moves anymore. They don't make sense with where the world is at. Who cares about the mafia anymore when you look at what's happening with transnational corporations and legalized synthetic heroin being sold by prescription and assault rifles being sold retail? All that stuff seems so quaint and like from a bygone era. So for those two movies, I could really feel it kind of building up. And then there was just a happy accident where one of my favorite books happened to be available. And I happened to ask my agent, like, hey, whatever happened to that book? Why didn't anyone do the big short? And he said, funny, you should ask. Let me call. And God bless Dee Dee Gardner and Jeremy Kleiner over at Plan B. They were open to the idea of the guy who directed Anchorman and Step Brothers taking a crack at the movie. Yeah. A's, zero. B's, zero. Double B's, zero. Triple B's, zero. And then that happens. 
What is that? That's America's housing market. There is, a, I think, a through line through all of your work of this examination of power. I mean, it's in Vice, it's in Succession, it's in Anchorman, as you mentioned, it's even in the landlord sketch. What is this interest that you have in power? And how, how is it, what is it that you think you're exploring about it in your work? One thing, like one small, small silver lining of how extreme things have gotten is that at this point, I think everyone understands when you have individuals worth a hundred billion dollars paying tax rates that are the equivalent of a taxi cab driver, uh, when you see basically no programs go through our government that voters actually want and just tons of tax loopholes for the 001%. There's all this stuff going on. And what's clear is that those in charge have failed. They've abdicated their responsibility. In many cases, they've uh, used it for their own gain. And because of that, we're in very dire circumstances. This has been something for me that the moment that I first started to go, hey, what's going on was back in the late 90s with Bill Clinton, where he started doing some policies where I was like, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. He's going to do mass imprisonment for drugs. Cut drug use in America by another 50 percent. This plan builds on our strategy of tougher punishment, better prevention and more partnerships to shut down the international drug trade. And from that point on, there just started to feel like this little tweak, you know, when you have a little tweak in your knee and you keep running and you're like, something weird's going on down there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of my friends would be like, ah, relax, it's fine. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And the W. Bush and Cheney. I believe it is critical that we continue to remind ourselves why this nation took action and why Iraq is the central front in the war on terror. And things just kept getting more and more bizarre from that point. So it's like clockwork at this point. I I wish there was a moment where it took a left or right turn and surprised us all, but it just, it hasn't. Including with remotely piloted aircraft commonly referred to as drones. As was true in previous armed conflicts, this new technology raises profound questions about who is targeted and why, about civilian casualties and the risk of creating new enemies. I've heard you say that you felt like Vice was a movie that got away from you a little bit. And that if you could do like a director's cut, you would. And I'm I'm curious what you meant by that. Like, what, what would you change about it? Yeah, that, that was the hardest movie I ever worked on, the hardest project I've ever been involved in. And the, the central narrative problem with it was that Cheney, in a lot of ways, is a passive character. He's a person who's created by his times. And I struggled with that. And I knew it going into the movie. I knew it with the script. I knew it when we shot it. And about halfway through the edit, I lost faith a little bit in that interpretation. And I went back to kind of some traditional building blocks on him. And I regretted it right away. Uh, I was like, ah, I should have let him be passive. That's what's so interesting about his story. Two-thirds of Americans say the Iraq war is not worth fighting. And they're looking at the value gain versus the cost in American lives and Iraqi lives. So 
So, don't you care what the American people think? No, uh, I think you uh, cannot be uh, blown off course. There's other things which some people didn't care for, which I 100% stand by, like the ending of the movie showing the undoing of America against his heart and the undoing of his family. Some people felt like was too much. I personally felt very emotional about it. I felt like that was what was happening in the country. So stuff like that didn't bother me. But the central issue of what his position was in that narrative was so difficult and nuanced. And I feel like in the kind of fog of the edit, I lost a little bit of that. So I am playing around with a director's cut. Um, I feel like there's no shame at all in going back and, and tweaking it. I think the funny thing with that will be that there will be a bunch of people that maybe didn't care for the movie the first time that in no way will be satisfied. <laughs> Just one more thing about Vice. I always felt like you were in such a bind in making the movie in that people who like Dick Cheney are going to think the movie is too critical and sort of aloof, and people who are really against Dick Cheney are going to think it's too sympathetic. Like, was that something that you grappled with? Did you always feel kind of stuck in the middle between what you knew were going to be these very polarized responses to just the simple existence of the movie? Yeah, I heard that criticism a lot. That one didn't bother me because I just patently thought it was incorrect. We went right inside his family. You know, we found the one thing that Dick Cheney, everyone will tell you what he loved were his daughters. And he and his wife betrayed their daughters in the name of politics. And I, I find it interesting. I have no idea if it's connected to our movie, but to see Liz Cheney come out for gay marriage, I, I took my breath away because that's almost political suicide in Wyoming. And clearly there was a personal moral decision behind her doing that. But no, I was quite happy with, you know, we showed all the crimes that took place. Uh, anytime you humanize a character, you humanize them. I mean, that's going to be a part of it. I think some people wanted him to be a two-dimensional monster, but he's not. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I felt like that ending and the tragedy of what happened to that family and the way it paralleled the tragedy of what's happened to our country, I, I felt like you can't go at a character any harder than that. Has been my honor to be your servant. You chose me. And I did what you asked. Do you still believe in conventional politics? Like, do you think that government actually has any power to fix regular people's actual lives? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you look at the history of it. No government's perfect. Our government was doing a lot of really wonderful things. And, you know, civil rights was passed in the 60s. You know, we created food stamps. Poverty was at its lowest rate in the history of our country in the early 70s. Uh, unions were strong. People had a living wage. We were about to pass universal health care. Even the Republicans were on board with that. Um, and then sadly, you go into the late 70s and you go into the Reagan era and they started stripping all those restrictions on uh, donor money, which finally culminated with Citizens United. So if you got that dirty money out of Washington, D.C., if people just stopped voting for people that take dirty money, 
it would literally be like turning the lights on and seeing roaches scatter. You, it, it would have an effect within months. And is that something that you might explore in your in your own work? And is it a challenge for you to take, you know, what's in some ways are sort of dry political ideas and make them into something entertaining? Yeah, I think that's another part of the game, too, is, you know, government's incredibly exciting. I mean, create laws. You change the way we live. It affects millions of people. Uh, you know, the the story of the opioid epidemic, 100,000 people dying last year, that just came from Congress turning its back. And look, it's just decimated people's lives. And then at the same time, you'll see good examples, like when we did pass the stimulus bill for COVID and how many people that helped not fall into poverty. I mean, there's World War II is government, landing on the moon is government. So uh, there's incredibly exciting things. It's actually not dry. And I think part of the way we're fooled is that we're told it's dry and boring and it's always corrupt. All right. Now I'm ranting and rambling about <laughs> politics. Sorry. I'm going to say, I just well, started, I to, I to... just started to bore myself. So <laughs> I'll stop <laughs> no, right no, there. Not at, all. <laughs> not at all. But then you're so passionate, you know, in your beliefs and, and the things that are important to you. Do you get frustrated? Do you get angry that things are the way that they are? And how do you kind of keep, you know, feelings of anger or frustration from overtaking you? I think for me, I experienced a lot of that anger and frustration. That was kind of the W. Bush Cheney years. And now I'm at a point where I stopped arguing with people on social media years ago about politics. I stopped trying to convince people years ago. I realized it was actually probably more damaging than anything. Um, so now it's a matter of just, you know, try and do what you do for a job, which is make movies, you know, observe what's going on, try and be informed and look for different ways to connect with audiences, which is our new company HyperObject. That's what we're doing. Now, as I understand it, like a, a hyper object is a thing that's too vast to be fully understood. And that seems like you like dealing with kind of big picture stuff like that. Is that kind of the mission of the company? Exactly. Yeah. It's from the eco philosopher, Timothy Morton. And he described uh, the climate crisis as a hyper object. And by that, he means that it's a hyper relativity and that it's impossible to comprehend in its totality. You encounter it in ways that are not like how you encounter other forces in your life. It bends time. It distorts. Um, and other examples would be like the universe, the Internet, the concept of race. Um, and it just really felt like what a great goal to try and create narratives for forces that defy having a narrative created about them. I, I just thought there was something kind of perfect about that. Before you started your new company, Hyperobject Industries, you and Will Farrell had your production company, Gary Sanchez Productions, and it was really a very successful company before the two of you shut it down. Was that a difficult decision to come to? I mean, it, from the outside, it looked successful, but the real truth was one day I came in, our bank account was empty and Farrell was down in Mexico City with a steamer trunk full of $9 million in gold bullion. No, um, it, it, was, uh, it was difficult uh, just because, you know, he's 
the greatest creative partnership of my life is with Will Ferrell and uh, also a great, great friend. But what was happening, and I'm sure you can tell from talking to me today, I get excited about doing a lot of different kinds of projects and working with a lot of different kinds of people. And we kept bumping into each other with that, not in any kind of angry way, but just in the sense of it's getting too big. This isn't really what I wanted to do. And we sort of uh, parted ways at that point. But you know how it goes. It happens. I, I think we had that company for, my God, was it 14 years? So I, I feel really good about it. It was a great run. And now you're credited as an executive producer on Succession. But do, what, do you have like a current involvement in the show? Like are you still involved in it, sort of the, the making of the show? Uh, yeah, I'm still in touch with Jesse. I still give notes. I just sent some story ideas for the next season. My big part in that show was setting the show up. Uh, when you direct the pilot, you get to be involved in the casting of it, creating the style, the look, um, the music. I really, really enjoy doing that. And uh, I just did it for the Lakers show that we're going to have coming out next year. Um, and then throughout the run of the show, I'll watch rough cuts. I'll give notes. Um, and then when you get to the point with Succession where it's really set sail, I mean, those guys are dialed in. My notes become much more fleeting and just read the first couple episodes, throw out a couple ideas, give a note or two on some of the cuts. And it's kind of your dream as a producer is when you start to transition from being a producer into just an audience member. It's what you hope will happen. That Lakers show is one that I think a lot of people are very excited about. I, I know I am. I, I'm giddy about that one. That kind of involves everything I love. It's about class, race, culture, this transformative moment, and then basketball, which, of course, I'm a huge basketball fan. So it's it's kind of a dream show. Los Angeles Lakers select Irvin Magic Johnson. You had such success with the big short and Vice, you know, you won an Academy Award, twice nominated for Best Director, twice nominated for Best Picture. Does that get in your head? Like when you were working on Don't Look Up, are you second guessing yourself? Are they like, does that impact you at all? You know, Mark, there's nothing wrong. You could have just said you were nominated for Best Director twice. You won an Academy Award, period. And then said, thanks for joining me, Adam. <laughs> they didn't need they didn't need to be a question uh no um does it get in your head god no no i really try never ever to think about that that can't come into your universe at all when you're doing anything so i almost have a rule like no one talk about any of that while we're working i don't want because occasionally there'll be someone like you know wow this is really good like feels like this could win away and you're like nope no, don't do it. Don't do it. It just has to be about what you're doing in the moment. 100% about that. So, uh, yeah, I, I think you could tell, too. I mean, you've seen the movie, Mark. Like, if yeah. if that were in my head, I, I'm not sure entirely I would have made this movie. <laughs> so, so I would say that my answer is this movie. <laughs> That's it from us here at The Envelope. I'm your host, Mark Olson. And I'm Yvonne Villarreal. If you haven't already, please make sure to follow The Envelope wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review and, you know, maybe recommend it to a friend. Uh, we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. 
This episode was produced and edited by Hiba El-Urbani, Asal Asanapur, and our new executive producer, Jasmine Aguilera. Our engineer and composer is Mike Heflin. Special thanks to Shawnee Hilton, Clint Schaff, Richard Hernandez, Gabby Fernandez, Jeff Berkshire, Elena Howe, and Matt Brennan. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.